We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The folks who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make this show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to ListenerQ, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com forward slash pull up and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered in a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash pull up. That's ListenerQ.com slash pull up. We're all talented. It's a mindset. It's a heart. It's a desire. Everyone in the NBA can hoop. It's who do you put in the locker room as veterans to help lead that talent in the right direction on and off the court. A coach can take your confidence or he can empower you. And I think one of the things you did a great job of when you were in Phoenix was empowering your players. As a coach and staff, are you going to get intimate with your players to where you understand the confidence and the obstacles of their of their talents to help them grow? Man, you go see these kids play. All they want to do is stunts, layups, and threes. Well, now those kids are adults. And now that's the way the game is played. Welcome to the Sean Alexander, former NFL player, for those of you out there that aren't aware. Episode of Pull Up, that's right, number 37. I'm currently in Oregon. Landed late last night after a win against the Clippers. Uh, second win in a row against a very good team. Haven't beaten Toronto, haven't beat the Clippers. Hopefully, we're turning the tide. Have a very, very great special guest that I want to introduce. But before that, it's contestant week number two, and this is the announcement. Last week, because of the holidays... We decided to begin doing trivia questions each week on the show for the listeners out there who are faithfully tuning in. I'll ask a question at the beginning of each show. You can answer on Twitter. Uh, make sure that you reply to the tweet on Pull Up Pod, uh, at Pull Up Pod on Twitter. And the winner of each week will be contacted directly on Twitter, and it'll be announced on each show. In order to win, you must be following Pull Up on Twitter. So here's the, <clears throat> here's the question. <clears throat> Who was the first player to be drafted number one without playing in college or high school basketball in the United States? That is question number one. And question number two, in what year was the leaning brand established? Two very, very easy questions. Hopefully you guys can answer them correctly. Now, before I introduce Jordan, we want to introduce our special guest. He was born in Kansas City. He played at UCLA where he started for four years. That's right, four years before being drafted to the Super uh, to the Seattle Supersonics in 2001. He played for 13 seasons in the NBA before starting coaching in 2014. Him, along with Baron Davis, were the first two freshmen to start at UCLA since 1979. He has the most starts and most consecutive starts in the history of UCLA basketball. Earl Watson. Appreciate you coming on to pull up hot, man. Good friend of mine. Good friend of Jordan Schultz as well. Uh, Earl actually, actually introduced Jordan and I, and it's crazy how life comes full circle. Now we have a podcast together. We're welcoming Earl on the show. Life is great. How you guys doing? Man, thanks for having me. This is it's, it's really cool, and I'm appreciative to be on the platform with you guys because I've seen you guys kind of grow up. So to see you extending beyond what you normally do, I think it's fantastic, man. Thanks for having me to both of you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Yeah, our pleasure for sure, man. And uh, I think it's it's crazy how life comes full circle. We got to play together for a few years, and you went on to coach, got to coach against you uh, as a player. Uh, just basically want to want to go through your process. Growing up in Kansas City, you do a lot for the community. You continue to give back not only with 
you know, your money, but with your time, you know, having a presence there. First, just kind of talk to me about your love for Kansas City and how important that is. And then we'll get into basketball and kind of talk about our relationship and your relationship with some of the players and where the state of the NBA is at now. I think being in, born in the Midwest and see, you know this, we kind of feel like we sometimes are overlooked from the coast. So when I chose to leave Kansas City, which was a hard choice to enter UCLA, for me, it was always the challenge of being someone outside of my comfort zone. I thought that would build character and build a mindset that can take me through life. And, you know, basketball is always our dream. But for me, I was thinking like a 50-year life plan. So to always come back and to give back and to be present whenever I can, which we got, you know, you guys know it's difficult during the season. It's difficult when you're active in the league as a player. And then a coach is full seasons, 12 years, 12, 12 months out of the year, you have to be active. It's not like a player you can leave in the summer. Now that I'm not coaching, I can actually have more of a hand in the community. I just want to inspire the next group of young, young men and young women to say they actually saw me, they connected to me. We entered the gym together or I entered a preschool that I have there and we just kind of be present for them to continue to dream. It's all about dreaming. I think you've done a great job of that and just, you know, knowing the relationship we have and how how you've kind of helped me grow as a player, as a person, uh, just kind of giving me that guidance when we were playing, giving me that guidance and feedback now that uh, you're out you're uh been involved as a coach, been involved as a player. You're one of the outstanding people who I kind of look forward to to having conversations with just because of how insightful you are. So I appreciate that and just wanted to let you know that I've learned a lot from you, you know, just by your demeanor, how you approach the game and, and how you're constantly trying to evolve as a person and, and gain that knowledge. Man, I really appreciate that. It's my entire life. You know, in Kansas City, I play for a legendary travel team called CMH 76ers. We changed the rules in AAU basketball. You know, Jerron Rush, Corleone Young, uh, Kareem Rush, Maurice Evans, Corey McGetty played for our program. Mike Miller played for our program. So I was very comfortable being like that second or third option. The guy didn't have to take all the credit, but the other guys got all the credit. And what I learned from going from there to UCLA to the NBA is how to kind of connect to personalities and try to bring the best out of everyone around me. And it carried me throughout my career. And it, it kind of put me in a mindset of coaching because, you know, coaching as a player or as an actual coach, you have to enhance the abilities around you and you have to be comfortable not getting all the credit. And I think it helped me as I got, became an older player and extended my career through the NBA. So the relationships is mutual as always. I love to see you guys do bigger and better things. Any way I can help, I've always try to implement that with positivity. Earl, take me back to your high school career because I remember talking to, to Lav, Steve Lavin, and he said the first time he saw you play, you know, you were this undersized, skinny little kid, but you were picking up these high-prize guards, full court, driving them crazy. You were rebounding every ball. You were pushing every play. So, like, where did that style of, you know, like that dog mentality come from at a young age? Uh, I think for me, all the people realize in high school, I was a scorer. I averaged 24 points, 14 rebounds, I think nine or 11 assists my senior year. And my junior was a little bit less. But when I played on my travel team, I had these six, seven, six, nine top players in the country. And I came into that situation still scoring. But what I realized is basketball was different at that time than it is now. Coming in as a point guard at that time, you had to make everyone else better and find how to get yours in between all of that action. So for me, 
it was how can I impact the game defensively, picking up full court, uh, making my teammates better, finding how Jerron Rush liked the ball in an outlet pass, or does he like it late at the rim? And Corleone Young giving it to him in a post and spotting up or screening away, just giving him space to work. And Kareem was just a shooter looking for him in transition. And that kind of carried to UCLA with Baron Davis throwing it ahead to him. Uh, trail threes for Jason Capono, hitting Matt early so he can make plays in transition. And then it continued through from UCLA to the NBA. So I think as a young player, when you come in, especially at any position, like CJ is more of a natural scorer and he gets it going, but CJ is learning how to get his players involved too. It's a natural progression of all players who want to be successful. Yeah, I would agree. I noticed that in you early on. And even, you know, when I was going through my DMP spells of, you know, getting in on off days and us playing two on two, us playing three on three, four on four, one on one, and just kind of seeing how you approach the game and how you worked, you know, in season 12 and season 13, like the way you approached the game at that point, uh, just kind of taught me some different things and gave me a different outlook on how I could get better. As you said before, like scoring has always been easy for me. It's always come naturally. So just seeing how you, how you cross grain, you know, in, in transition or how you make eye contact with somebody before the back door and just those little nuances of the game that you don't pick up early on in your first or second year. Sometimes it takes five years. Sometimes it takes seven years for you to really learn and, and kind of put everything together full circle. I think, I think for those type of nuances, you know, some players come into the league, like Devin came into the league and he didn't really have any older players to teach him. I think, when we had um, in Portland, when I was with you and you was young, the DMPs and the mindset behind it, I can tell that I had to be a, a, a great big brother on that roster and like just pick you up and just tell you honestly, like, hey, this game changes quick. There's nothing you can do about the DMPs, but how can we get better? So when your time comes, you're well prepared. And I don't want to jump ahead of how we, you know, the, the progression of this conversation, but for me, I just wanted to make everything for you as easy and as difficult as possible, meaning easy for you to go through that process and be in there for you. If you had to get to the gym early, we actually took a cab to the gym. We didn't even wait for the early bus. We went earlier just to get you prepared, but difficult, meaning when we did scrimmage or we played or we worked out, I try to push you and make it as hard as possible so mentally and physically you'll be prepared. Now, I remember those days, and I tell our rookies all the time, you know, when they're running the bleachers and, you know, going through these workouts and conditioning just to, to go take a shot and put their suit on, I tell them all the time that this is a natural progression that we all go through. A lot of us have gone through this and had to go to the gym early. And I remember the conversation you had with me, uh, Will Barton, Victor, T-Rob in Dallas on the road. We were playing like three on three or something like that, and we was all kind of going through the motions. And you kind of stopped. You stopped us while we were playing. He was like, "Look, man, you think I don't? You think I don't want to? You think I don't want to play? Like I want to play too. You know what I'm saying? But I, I'm out here doing this stuff to get you guys better. I'm out here sacrificing my time. I could be retired right now. Basically, is what you were saying that we're not taking this game seriously. We're out here going through the motions, and only one of us is going to play, and the rest of us is getting DMP. So you was basically telling us that we have to take this seriously because, for one, we're always being evaluated not only by our our coaching staff, but it's other coaches, it's other scouts in the building watching us warm up, watching us go through these these progressions uh, pregame and kind of seeing how we're approaching it. And you're basically telling us that, look, you got to take this stuff seriously because, for one, we all want to play. Only one of us can. So we got to make sure we're playing as hard as we can and putting everything out there and, and not taking advantage of the game. 
And uh, it's always stuck with me. So when I see our rookies and I see them having a down day, it takes me back to how I used to feel, you know, coming to the gym at three o'clock, taking the cab, the taxi, and telling them that this is your game. This this 30 minute workout, this 45 minutes of you running the stairs and riding bikes and lifting weights before the game, this has to be your game because you're not playing tonight. And uh, I, I didn't understand it at the time, but like looking back now, like I kind of see, you know, how they can get down on themselves and how it can be frustrating because this is the first time in your life to where you're good enough to play, but you're not playing. I agree. I think I think for me, like with these with, with young players coming in, Jordan, the, you get a lot of everyone in the NBA can hoop. I say this all the time. Everyone has talent. It's who do you put in the locker room as veterans to help lead that talent in the right direction on and off the court. And then as a coaching staff, are you going to get intimate with your players to where you you understand the the the, the confidence and the obstacles of their of their talents to help them grow? And to also keep them safe to where eventually they develop the obstacles. And then can you create an offense to enhance those talents? Like can specific players have specific talents? How can your offense make them better and give them a better chance of being successful? And it's so much that goes into that development where when we was in Portland, CJ's rookie year, and it was un it was it was undeveloped culture because they haven't really at that point, we haven't really won yet. And that year, we won big for that first year. And it created a culture and it created a bar to where now that core, that young core of CJ and Dame, eventually in the backcourt, they understood what it took. They understood the work ethic and practice. They understood taking care of their body outside of practice. They understood the mindset and the grind of going at this certain level every time you touch the court. Where now it's just natural for them. But you get a lot of players who never get that and they get lost in the NBA shuffle of now being labeled as highly talented but not good enough to win. How dangerous is it for a guy that's really talented and comes in as a lottery pick like CJ did uh, and doesn't have the right attitude and thinks that he should be playing you know, 15, 30 minutes, whatever it is, and not getting DMPs, and then that attitude starts to get worse and worse and progressively uh, they start to fall out of standing with the front office and the coaching staff. Like, how dangerous is that, and how often does it happen? Well, you have to look at it as from two lenses. And for me, I've always looked at it as a player first because I'm more naturally – that was my natural path. And from a player, when you come into the league as a lottery pick or any pick, you have to have that attitude that I deserve to play. That's not, that's not a bad attitude or a wrong attitude. That's a competitive attitude, competitive attitude. You need that because you want that on your roster. You want that 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 dying thirst to touch the court and be a part of something great and compete and to just give whatever you have. It's not going to always happen. And CJ had that. And I, I could tell it was difficult for him his first year, but then when he got his opportunity, look what he did with it. So we, we never killed it. And as a veteran player, I never killed it. I never wanted to kill that passion. I just wanted to enhance his, his competitive nature through every day we touch the court, we're getting better for that opportunity. Now, as a coach, you got to be very careful. You have to be very careful in creating an environment that's successful because you only get three years as a player to create an identity. 
in those three years, if you do the analytics, most players never change who they are. Whoever their role is and what their role is, it's very seldom for a player to break out after the third year unless it's from trade and it's by default. So for us as coaches, you got to have vision of what a player can be, what is what he can't be, and then how can you get him beyond, you know, just the, the, the basic, you know, visual of what he brings to the table now, and that's called development. And you got to have talks on the court and off the court. You have to visualize and you have to go on the court and actually execute. And those conversations flow because players can lose confidence very quick. And CJ noted that the NBA is the most confident league, but it's also the most fragile. So you have to be very careful and not take away their passion. Yeah, you, you're right about that. The, the most confident league, but fragile because we go through lulls, we go through anxiety, we go through depression, we go through stress to where that affects performance. And there's so many games, there's so many things going on in your life that one bad game, two bad games can spiral. Or as you said before, it's it's hard. It's hard, but a coach can take your confidence. He can take your confidence or he can empower you. And I think one of the things you did a great job of when you were in Phoenix was empowering your players. Your players responded well to you. They liked you. They enjoyed being around you. And Obviously, Devin Booker is one of the players that you you coached, and he had a 70-point performance. And I remember, I remember the interview after the game. You talked about how we're not here to be liked. We're here to get our players better. I'm here to inspire these, these young boys and turn them into men. And one of the ways you inspire them is by empowering them and allowing them to flourish and kind of show their total talents. Devin Booker is a guy who came off the bench at Kentucky. He's turned into a, not only a scorer, but a distributor. He's able to facilitate offense. He has a mid-post game. He can come off screens and score. He can score in isolation situations. Uh, he's one of the few players that can score at every level, and he's only 21 years old. So what did you kind of see in him early on that allowed you to believe he could he could go from, you know, splitting minutes with guys to, to being a starter to being a $170, $200 million player? Uh, for me, I'll say this, I'll say this in, in a joking but serious manner because I don't I don't think I would ever get the credit and I don't really care for, you know, impacting certain players. But it's amazing how I'm always around talented people and somehow I'm very close to them and, you know, good things happen. I'm just very, I'm lucky to be on that path to impact to have be a part of their ride. So with Devin Booker, um, he was a catch and shoot player coming out of Kentucky, the thirteenth pick. And I just got to Phoenix from San Antonio, San Antonio via San Antonio G League. And while in San Antonio, I worked with the front office to create the pitch for LaMarcus Aldridge free agency. Being in Portland a year before, I kind of knew and kind of knew what he wanted and what he liked and just created the pitch. Eventually, I brought the pitch to Phoenix. And this is why us in San Antonio was the two teams down the stretch. And I'm I'm never mentioned for it, and it's cool. Listen, I don't care. Things happen the way they happen. But with Devin Booker, what I saw with Devin was what I like to do, see, is I like to go in the gym, and I like to see a player work out. And when a player work out, you know, it's what I call a gate. And the gate for me is their body movement, like the flow of the game, the bounce of the game. You know how we size players up? Think about, like, AAU days when we didn't have a scout. Remember those days? And we never knew who the other player was. Right, you watched warm-ups. And we just watched them in, in warm-ups and kind of like watching the way they run and how they dribble kind of told us how they play. 
So for me, watching Devin Booker, I noticed that he was he was kind of good off the bounce, but he was uncomfortable because you can tell he was limited as just a spot-up shooter. And then I started to see him handle the ball, and then being his his development coach, I started putting him in pick and rolls, and we did something simple, which I learned from Hubie Brown. We didn't go off the bounce. We went off the catch and just two dribbles removed from each screen. And I noticed his his explosion from vertical once he stopped on a dime was was excellent. It was it was it, it was elite. Handling it, we kind of worked on just a couple dribble moves, and we really said we're going to start out mastering the elbows and midpoint jump shots and catch and shoot three. Once we mastered the elbows, midpoint jump, midpoint jump shots and catch and shoot three, we wanted to then master posting all footwork, all Kiki Vanderway, Jordan from back in the day, reverse pivots, pump fakes, step backs. And then I wanted to put different patterns and to push his brain to think so to think beyond the normal pattern of a counter. So then we started looking at Kobe film and that's when the visualizing start. You start looking at Kobe in the post and all his pivot work, Kobe mastering the elbows and all his pivot work. And then we starting to put Devin Mix to it. Now, when I became a head coach, I put him in pick and rolls. And I remember this like it was yesterday. February 1st, I took over as the head coach and we had Markeith Morris and Devin Booker. Eric Bledsoe was out. Brandon Knight was out for the year. And we had a group that was banged up. There was no more hope. They didn't know what was going to happen. And this is tough, see, and, and Jay and Markeith had asked for a trade. And the trade deadline was like two weeks away. So management goes, we need to get the best out of Markeith Morris so we can move him. At this time, Marquise was in and out of the lineup. He was playing so par, but it was just a disconnect between him and the, and the organization, not even coaching. So I put everyone in the theater. Now, when I was in Memphis, I remember in 2002, 2003, Hubie Brown took it over. Jerry West was the GM. Hubie Brown took over at 10 games in from Sidney Lowe, and he walks into the locker room. And it's Drew Gooden, it's myself, it's Paul Gasol, it's Shane Battier. It's this young core of players and Jason Williams, White Chocolate, Lorenzo Wright, Strowman Swift, and Jerry West introduces Hubie Brown. And Hubie takes over and he looks at us <laughs> and he goes, first, I just want to tell you, you're all effing losers. <laughs> if you was a winner... <laughs> <laughs> if you was a winner, I wouldn't be here. And he didn't even use effing, right? He used the right B word. And I'm 22 years old, and I've never really been coached by an older coach. I'm thinking this dude is the crankiest, oldest dude I've ever seen in my life. How could this even be? Like, And Bob Myers at the time, the GM of Golden State, now Bob Myers was my, was my agent. So I remember calling Bob as soon as that interview was over, like, Bob, you got to get me the F out of here. This dude is cranky and he's old. And Bob was like, no, no, Jerry loves him. He's going to be good for you. So as I'm taking over as head coach, I just put everyone in the theater room. And I walk in and I go, listen. <laughs> and I learned this from Hubie Brown. Never have any one-on-one talks. You have to talk to the team as a whole. I go through all 10 players, see, and I give them all their role. 
I tell them they're going to come off the bench. These are going to be your minutes. And I'll save Markeith and Devin for last. The players, the two players who wasn't going to play, I told them, you're not going to play. But you have to be ready because if Mirza Toledovic fucks up, you're taking his spot. And Mirza looked at me like, yeah, he's going to take your spot the minute you mess up, so be on point. And I look at, I look at, I look at Devin. I think Devin might have been 18 at the time. And I said, Devin, you're going to be our second option. I was like, we're going to come to you down a stretch. You're going to be a key guy. And we believe in you, and you are going to be the future of this franchise. Like, I know you haven't been playing big minutes. You haven't been starting. But things are changing, and you're going to give Phoenix hope. And then I look at Markeith, and I go, hey, listen, this is tough conversation. See, I'll, I'll, I've, not, I've never seen anyone do this, but I think players respect honesty because from my player days, I'd rather be told the truth than to be lied to. So I look at Markeith, I say, hey, listen, there's no secret that you don't want to be here. It's not personal. It's business. Honestly, I fucking love you because I love everything he brought to the game and to the team, like the toughness, the confidence, the skill set. I said, so in the next two weeks, you're going to be our number one option. I said, you're going to give us numbers. You're going to play great. I think you can give us 20, 10, and 5. I said, and then we can help you get moved. But until then, you're a part of this organization. You're part of this team. You're part of this immediate family. And we all fucking believe in you. And he got, he, he loved it. He connected. And in two weeks, we turn a pick that we turn a player that we couldn't move into a lottery pick. And he went to the Wizards. And then when he left to the Wizards, I had another meeting. We put them all back in the room. And I told Devin he's going to be our number one option moving down, going down a stretch into the season. And I knew he was going to fail. I was like, you are going to fail, but you won't fail for long because we're there for you. And then at the end, I asked if anyone, if they disagree with anything that I said, if they had a problem with it, say it now. And everyone bought into line and Devin ran off 30-point games and first-team all-rookie and the rest is history. Wow. See, that type of empowerment. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. But, it, but it's, it's that type of, of empowerment that you're talking about, right, CJ? When a coach, especially one like Earl who played, is able to not only relate to the players – but empower them and, and really validate what they believe or what they maybe want to believe but can't quite do yet. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly how you have to do things because a lot of times it's messages getting misconstrued when you talk to players one-on-one or you bring in certain guys in. If you address things as a whole and then you go back to Devin and you say, let me know if there's any problems, let me know if you're hearing anything because then you can address certain situations individually and collectively because you're giving people a chance to to rebuttal and say, hey, maybe I don't agree with that. Maybe I should be the second option or I shouldn't be not playing. I should be playing over Mirza or whatever the case may be. And then you're able to address it and say, well, if you can do X, Y, Z, you will play over them. And then the whole team heard it. So now everybody's tightening up because they know that they have their roles defined, but there's a chance that they could change their role. And I think that's the that's the most important thing in the in the business and not just basketball, but the world is that communication openly is effective because then you know where you stand, not only uh, with your reputation and, and, and where you stand in the organization, but in relationships. If you tell your friends, like, this is how I value you, this is how I see you as a friend, then that's it. That's what it is because that's what you told them. Earl, did you feel like with Devin that, that when he came in, that, that he was – not only was he underutilized, but like that he was capable of 
of of of becoming that guy like even i guess the question is how how did you know he was capable of being that guy given the fact that he was basically put in the corner as a spot up guy or a one dribble pull up guy at kentucky like I, i've talked to him about this a lot and when he talks about the skill development process with you specifically it was a lot of it because you believed in him but a lot of people probably didn't because they hadn't seen him, seen him do it so how did you know um, coming into the situation in Phoenix, they just put $140 million in the backcourt. They gave Bledsoe 70, they gave Brendan Knight 70. And then they drafted Devin, right? They played, they, they, they paid, they paid Bledsoe the year before, paid Brendan Knight the same summer they drafted Devin. So that's, as, so from a, for players to understand this, and this is when players are going to have compassion for coaches, it's not always the coach's decision on who to start or who to play, right? So for me saying that, then I had to take that upstairs to management and then ownership to tell them what I was going to do going into the next season. Because Brandon Knight and Bledsoe was out, so it was, it was easy for me as an interim to play Devin and give him all that empowerment, all that power to empower him. So in the summer leading up to Devin's second year is when – I had to take that to management saying I'm staying this way. And to, to, to their, you know, perspective and their lens, now you step it into management lens. We just drafted this catch and shoot player off the bench at 13. I just paid two top scoring backcourt players, 70 million each. And you're telling me you're going to do what? Right. And then to ownership, which, you know, ownership in Phoenix is very involved in every process. Their thing was, I don't think he's ready because how could they think he's ready? The vision wasn't there yet. The, 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 the impact hasn't happened yet. It was off 20 games. So I could see it because different from ownership and management, you remember, take it to the beginning. And as a head coach, I kept this. I am in the gym with the players as they go through the development process because I create the development plan with every coach that's assigned to them. So in the summertime, I was in the gym with him. I was having these conversations with him. We would sit down before we started working out and see we would talk about life. We would talk about perspective on what a successful player is. And then we will visualize it. So I'd be like, yo, book, what do you want to do? He was like, I want to be as good as Kobe. And I was like, what does that mean? He was like, I love the way Kobe did this. I love the way Kobe did that. So then I will find clips and we will find clips and we will sit there and just watch them. And we'll talk about it and we'll visualize him doing it. And then we go on the court and we will work it, work on it till we perfected it. So we was creating this mental preparation before we even touch the physical part of the game. So I believed in him completely, and that led into the second year with him going into Boston and having 70, which from the coaches' fraternity, I got the most backlash for. From every player that I've ever known, I got the most respect for. It was like, wow. hell yeah, like let him get it. You know, so it, it was different. It was too different, and that's where my comment came, CJ, when I was like, I don't care about being liked. I'm here to compete. I don't care about a fraternity. I don't care what happens to me after I leave here. All I know is this is going to change his life, and I think it did. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, as a player, I think it's all about promoting greatness, and I think that you you allow him to do that, promote a greatness, and I think that it, it helps show him, 
you know, how how well-rounded he was as a scorer, how good he was to do it out on the road. To be able to do that against a team like Boston, I think it, it showed how good he could be, and I think it gave him an extra spark of confidence. And, I, and, you know, I don't know what it's like to be in the coaching fraternity, but I can imagine that a lot of them probably were unhappy with it and, and felt like you should have, I don't know, taken them out of the game or whatever. I don't know what you should have done, but I think it's always interesting to see the difference in perspective and opinions from players versus coaches versus front office. But for you to go to the, the management and tell them that you're going to play him over two guys that just got paid, that that was gutsy because – you know, seeing an organization and seeing how things are ran, when they pay guys, they want to play guys, especially when they have a draft pick who's who's in a position where he's not going to get paid for a few years and you have time to develop him. They usually take the, the wait-and-see approach and try to play the, the guys that are currently under contract making the most money. My vision on that was I thought Bledsoe was really good. I thought Brandon Knight was really good. And I thought Devin Booker was a superstar. And really good doesn't really give you enough it doesn't really give your city life. It doesn't give your city hope. It's just, oh, we're really good, but we don't have Steve Nash. Oh, we're really good, but I don't see a Amari Stoudemire. But I knew Devin Booker was ready for that moment mentally, and I knew physically he would continue to get better because he was so driven. We would, we would go to ASU. People don't know this. Devin Booker has the key to ASU practice facility, the key. So we would go there at 10 o'clock at night and we would sit with his brother and we would sit there with Devin and we would sit there and we would talk about, um, you know, what are we going to do to vision and, you know, what's going to happen and what's the future and visualize it now, dude. I was like, dude, you got to visualize it now. You don't, nothing should ever happen by accident. You have to see it vividly today and then work towards it till it, until, until it becomes true. And then we would get on the court and we would start working on our game and working on his game. But, yeah, it was gutsy, but I think it paid off. And for me, I had my chance as a player. I didn't want to hold anyone back. I want to give him that platform immediately when he was ready. And he was ready off the bat. We've got more pull-up in a minute. But first, I want to talk about Eero. Eero Plus' design provides simple, reliable security that defends all your home's devices against a growing number of threats, such as malware, spyware, phishing attacks, as well as unsuitable content. The combination of Eero with Eero Plus provides complete protection for your network and all the devices, and those who use them, as they connect to the internet. With Eero, you get total network protection. Eero Plus offers the ability to block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network. Advanced security. By checking the sites you visit against a database of millions of known threats, Eero Plus prevents you from accidentally visiting malicious sites without slowing anything down. Ad blocking. Get rid of annoying ads and pop-ups on all your devices. Ad blocking also improves load times for ad-heavy sites so you can browse and stream faster than ever before. Plus, third-party security apps, VPN protection from Encrypt.me, password management from 1Password, antivirus software from Malwarebytes. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android devices, and it'll walk you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. And Eero has incredible customer support. Their experts will walk you through everything and give you advice on how many Eros are right for your home, which I love. It's easy and prevents tons of tech headaches. Here's the offer. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Get $100 off the Eero base unit and two Beacons packages and one year of Eero Plus. Visit Eero.com backslash pull up and a checkout and a pull up. 
let's get back to the show. When did you start the visualization process? Did you start that early on as a, as a kid? Were you visualizing? Were you meditating? Visualating. I just made that word up. Were you, were you <laughs> meditating and kind of picturing things before it happened? Or did it come to you as you kind of got older and once you got to UCLA, once you got to the NBA, you kind of picked that up? Um, it kind of happened naturally. Um, all great coaches that I play for, from Hubie Brown and the Jerry West combo, coach, combo coaching GM, Jerry West will always tell our team, the greatest gift you have in life is imagination. So that always stuck with me. And then Hubie Brown would prepare us to visualize who we were going to be as a team 12 months from now. And then I go off into, you know, um, the Pacers and I have, you know, Larry Bird, Jim O'Brien, Frank Vogel, and they kind of spoke the same way. And Jerry, and Jerry Sloan kind of had it in Utah and Kevin O'Connor, then I start seeing similarities between those three and my conversations with Coach Wooden. So then I start finding books and reading on uh, visualizing imagination and just the mindset which produces success. And I was thinking, how can I take all this literature and give it to a player in a non-threatening way where it's still cool, it's still culture, and it's still swaggy because you got to still understand your environment. And I kind of started with actually with John Simmons in the G League. As, as a coach, and I started with him, and then kind of started with you guys, too, talking about where do you want to be next year when we would go there, we would practice like it was games and creating visualization of where you want it to be, and then as a coach with John Simmons in the G League, it really, it prevailed because he ended up coming from a walk, like a tryout to the Spurs G League to being an NBA player, now making X amount of millions of dollars with a career, it changed his life, and that gave me supreme confidence to take it to Devin Booker and the Phoenix Suns. I like it because like the way I grew I grew up was just speaking things into existence and kind of like you got to see it to believe it and the and the power of the mind is is incredible and I think that people don't understand like you said before we're all talented it's a mindset it's a heart it's a desire inside of you because we all got the same coaches we all got the same weights we got the same access it's about what's in between the these these uh ears above your head. And I think that the first time I really visualized a full game, because I visualized where I would be at in life. I visualized playing in the NBA, hitting big shots. But I was struggling in the playoffs and T-Mac reached out to me and he was like, he was like, bro, you got to visualize the entire game, play by play, like calling plays in your head, you know, going through, going through stuff, visualize the whole game. And I didn't do that until the playoffs, my second, my third year in the league, we were in the playoffs against the Clippers. And I literally visualized my whole, my 38 minutes, like how it would go in my head. I sat down and I visualized the whole thing. And that's the first time I really went through that process of visualizing an entire game as opposed to just a moment. And, and, and Jordan, that takes me back to what I said earlier in our conversation. Every NBA player have three years to develop who they are going to be. And it's not by their choice. It's not by the player choice. It's by the coaches, management, and ownership choice on how they're going to develop their mindset. He said third year in the playoffs, second year is when he started playing, and now CJ is consistently that player. By his third year, he's consistently that. Now he's going to get better at making assists and decision-making, but his role is already defined, which wow. gives you supreme confidence. When did you know that, that CJ was, was going to be a star? Was it during those DMPs when you guys were taking cabs? Was that was it that early? Um, well, players is different. I knew CJ was going to be a star. I don't know if he remembers this, but he broke his foot. 
he obviously remembers that. But then he went to the G League and put up numbers. Remember that, C? Yeah, I, I remember. I remember. Most players who go there. I, I broke my foot. I was out three months. Yeah. Most players who go there, they don't have that same response. So I knew he was going to be special because he just wanted to hoop. He wanted to play. And he was, he was, he was, he had this drive to prove that he not only belonged, but he was special in this game. And then his mindset, he was always mature. He was always searching for more knowledge. He was always searching to be better, but he also had this nastiness to him. So he had a great balance of both, which is very unique in any sport. And then his commitment to do the extra, to go to the gym early, to if you had a conversation with him, he would take the knowledge, he was executed immediately. His maturity just kept growing and growing and growing. And then in practice, he would have these moments where he was just phenomenal. And you know, all he needed was an opportunity. And then he learned how to win. And then his second year, obviously, is his second year. And he just blew up. But I wasn't surprised because I've seen it before, the season before, when he didn't have a chance to actually play in games and get quality minutes. Was that really hard, see, going down from the NBA to the G League where you're, you're on buses and sitting on commercial flights in the 27th row? No, it's funny because like life literally comes full circle. I, I remember visiting a team during the pre-draft process, and they said, you know, they're t- giving you the percentage of players that play in the G League, and they talked me about it, like, how would you handle it? And I'm like, I'm never going to play in the G League. Like, that was my mindset. I was like, I'm not going to need to. I was like, I'm going to be ready. I've been to school for four years. Like, that won't be necessary for a guy like me. I said, I can see how it could be useful for certain players, but I'll never need to do something like that. And I kind of, like, brushed it off and laughed about it. You fast forward, I break my foot. I'm rehabbing. I'm going through the process. I get a call around the holidays. My girl's about to... My girl's about to fly out, and uh, the team calls and they say uh, you're going to be cleared to play in a week. We want you to we want you to go to Idaho and play in the G League. And I'm just sitting here laughing like this is crazy. I I really said I'd never play in the G League. Like I would never have to do that. And I'm getting a call saying they want you to do a rehab assignment in the G League. So I was just like, and I was kind of mad about it because I had been working out for so long. I wanted to play in the NBA like right away. I had I had I never got a taste of it. My uh, my pre-draft workout guy, Michael Carter-Williams, that was my buddy. That's my guy to this day. He was killing. He's about to win rookie of the year. I'm sitting here watching. I'm watching all these rookies in my draft class just playing well, and, I, and I'm hurt, and I can't do nothing. So I feel, like, helpless. So I'm just like, all right, whatever. They want me to go to the G League? Like, cool. Like, I'll go. And I end up going down there, and they put me on a minute restriction, so I was hot. They put me on a minute restriction, and the first game goes into overtime, and our head head uh, trainers there with me. I'm looking up at him like, can I play? Like like a kid in a candy store, like, can I have it? And they're like, no, this is it. So I, I tapped out at like, I don't know, 25 minutes was my, I think it was 20 minutes or 25 minutes and then 30 minutes was my minute restriction. So I ended up having to watch the overtime and my guy Pierre Jackson was on my team. Tell me why in the, in the game I come back, I, I play and Pierre scores 55. And we and we, uh, we end up playing against Troy Daniels. Troy Daniels hit like 11 threes on us in D league game, and it was a back to back. So we played that day. I had a practice day, and then we played again. And those were my two games in the G league. And and I was like, I looked down upon it because I just felt like I, I didn't need it, but it was very helpful for me. My development it was humbling to just experience that. Go from you know living in luxury to seeing you know how you travel. Um, obviously, I played two home games, but just seeing the difference in what it's like to play for a multi billion dollar corporation in uh, a G League team. But it reminded me of just uh, the appreciation and understanding of uh, life and how never say never because anything is possible, but anything can happen to you. So you always have to humble yourself. 
So it was just the two home games. But I wonder, like, because you played at Lehigh and not Kentucky or Kansas, that maybe you already had that humble attitude. Did that matter? Oh, man, yes. I've seen it all, literally. Like, like the NBA is it's a dream come true, man. It's unbelievable, the treatment you get. Like, I remember the first day, like, find out that we had a team masseuse. I was like, what? We actually have, like, a team masseuse that does, does massages, like, every day on command? I was on the table every day. Ask Earl. I'm sure Earl remembers. I lived on that table. They used to get mad and be like, Rook, you don't even play. Like, why are you always on the table? I'm like, we never had this type of stuff. No. Like, no. to have, like, an actual jacuzzi, an ice bath, to have a refrigerator with, like, Gatorade and stuff in it. Like, we, I didn't go to UCLA. Like, we didn't, we didn't have access to this type of stuff. Like to be able to go to the gym whenever you wanted to. I went to an institution where academics was a priority. So three months out the year, I had a key to the gym after after I basically stole a key from one of my coaches. I tricked them into giving me a key because they weren't allowed to give them out. Three months out the year, I would I would go to our ox gym and they would have chairs set up for exams because our, our school was so small. We used the gyms for exam space. So I would literally create space with the chairs and, and tables. I'll never forget it. Every year during exam week, there's two two real big periods of exam. I would create space so I could shoot threes and mid-range shots. And there would be tables and chairs all around me. And every time I would shoot, it would like a chair or a table would stop it and the ball would come back. And I would literally be dribbling around tables and chairs in the gym shooting. And then the security or janitors would come in and try to kick me out. Oh, but like that's, that's how I grew up. So I had like an extreme amount of appreciation for like just the little stuff, like a big locker. You know what I'm saying? Like they had everything you ever wanted, like taking water from the practice facility, taking cereal. Like you're looking around, like you're like all this stuff is like ours. This is crazy. You know what I'm saying? And that's kind of how I've always been. Just like Polly, right? E? I mean, you know, UCLA just now got kind of advanced and all this stuff. You know, it's a funny story for you. See, this is this is how the NBA changed. I got drafted to the Sonics. It was Gary Payton. It was. Uh, uh, it's a veteran group, Ruben right? Patterson. We had a team masseuse, but I didn't even know it even existed until my third year in the league. The vets didn't even tell me about her. I would always see her. like, what the hell does she do? But they were like, just keep walking. She just works for upstairs. Like, oh, okay. Then the third year, the third season, she was like, do you ever want a massage? So I was like, that's what you do? That's so she was good. like, yeah. I was like, they told me you like worked for the front office. Like, I had no clue. So, you know, we were nicer to you back in the day, see? That's hilarious. Yeah, she's the, uh, <laughs> I told you she's she's the assistant GM or one of our international scouts. Don't worry. <laughs> so my, my, last, my last question for you. I know you've been on for probably longer than you, you want it to be, but... The NBA, like you said before, the state of the NBA, it's changed. You know, you're getting drafted to Seattle. How the game was played, obviously you played with KD. You played with some of those guys. How the game was played then compared to how it's played now. What what do you like about the game now that's different, and what do you miss about the old NBA? Um, I've been fortunate enough to be involved as a sponsor with AAU basketball for the last probably like 15 to 16 years, and I, and I, and I just stepped away from it. But I remember... While I was playing, we would talk about this young group of kids who all they had was trainers, and you go watch them play, and you go to the kids. It's probably like my sixth year in the league, like, you know, 2006. And it was like, you go to the, man, you go see these kids play. All they want to do is shoot layups, dunks. They want to do dunks, layups, and threes. Like, they're learning the wrong way. Like, we would complain as players, right, as older players. Well, now those kids are adults. And now that's the way the game is played. 
So what I became mindful of is never criticize the younger kids coming up, but yet learn their style of play because that style of play will one day be your next dominant player in the league. So what is coming now? So I think the future of the NBA and the state it is now is highly skilled players who can play on the perimeter, obviously. Um, the mid-range is a lost art, but I think you need to mid-range. You need mid-range scoring to end games, and I would love to see the analytic on how many games were won with big shots in the mid-range in the mid-range shot versus the three versus the rim. Because you know, see, when you play and you get to the rim, you know you're going to get hit if it's a last-second shot, if it's a game winner. Right. No one has the confidence in the referees to make that call. So it's risky. Right. So you're only open for a tenth of a second with a mid-range pull-up. The minute you get past the mid-range, you almost have to finish tough at the rim. And now you leave it up to the referee to call a foul, which we know the referee would not call a foul on a last-second shot. So you got to have some mid-range to your game in order to close games and win games and hit big shots. So I think the Florida NBA game to me is faster, it's more skilled, it's higher scoring, it's fun to watch. Elite players are no longer just in conversation of three players, three to five. Now you have maybe 10 players who can be elite and dominate the league for the next 10 years. And athleticism is at an all-time high. But I think more than ever, you still have to change the perspective as a coach a GM and as an owner, you almost got to get into a college mindset of recruiting for free agency because everyone has money now. Developing your young talent because that's the future of the NBA and players are coming in, they need to be developed. And then also, how do you visualize and kind of have relationships now with the parents? Because when I came into the NBA in 2001, that didn't exist. Today, you don't see entourages of five or six homeboys you see families, you see the mom, you see the dad, you see the brother. So now you have to develop a relationship beyond the player and extend it to the family because everyone's a part of that development process. Yeah, those are facts. It is more family-oriented right now for sure. Well, I have, I have two quick follows that, that basically I think just sum up the kind of uh, person that Earl is and also how he's right about that when he talks about where the league is is going and continues to go. One is to uh, to close the loop on Devin. See, the night he scored 70, I remember watching the press conferences and everybody was on Twitter, everybody was on Earl. How could he, you know, it's terrible, he let him play, should have taken him out, they were going to lose. So Earl calls me that night, or I called Earl, and I, and I was like, you good? And he's like, I'm great. And I was like, yeah, but people are on you. He's like, yeah, but, but the people in that locker room, especially Devin, He's never going to forget that. And this could help take his career to another level. So that was one thing. He didn't care about the outside influencers that, that didn't really matter. And then secondly, Earl, you had KD his rookie year, right? Yes. And then you had him in OKC after Seattle. So, like, I, you were telling me then, and, and maybe other people were saying this, I don't, I don't remember, but you were like, this guy is going to be the best player in the world. And that was a lot to say for a kid that, couldn't bench press one single bar at the combine. And a lot of people didn't believe after that rookie year where he didn't shoot a good percentage that he was going to be a great player. So I, 
I mean, I, I, for a long time, you've been saying, like, this league is going towards wings or bigs that can play outside. And for a long time, people fought it because they thought it was soft when bigs would play outside. But now it's just we know the math and the analytics tell us that you want layups and threes. So, I don't know. I just feel like you were ahead of that. Maybe that's because you played so long. I don't know. But I, I do think it's worth mentioning and giving you credit for there for that. I appreciate that, but I've been around the best players in the world my entire life from grade school, Jerron Rush, Corleone Young, through college, Baron Davis, through the NBA with all the great talents that I played with. And seeing Kevin Durant come into the league at 6'10", 6'11", maybe he's 7 feet tall, I don't know. But to seeing how he can handle the ball, to seeing how he shot the ball, and I, I say this all the time, everyone, everyone has addictions in their life. The best hoopers in the world who can get the most out of their amazing skill set and talent are addicted to basketball. And Kevin Durant had this addiction to getting better and to playing and to hooping. He is just a hooper. You know, the, the dude where no matter where you see him, he's in sweatsuits and shorts, like ready to hoop and some slides. That's like KD all day. And then you have CJ who, to me, CJ is, there's pattern players. To me, a great pattern player was 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 Darren Williams in Utah. He dominated that offensive system because there's a pattern to it that never changed. And then you have non-pattern players who can play outside of a system because their brain thinks differently in combinations. And then you have your CJs, you have your Danes, you have your Baron Davis, you have your Kevin Durant, and you have or LeBron James who can play either in a pattern or create the pattern as the game flows. And as we know, see, the defense is only going to rotate a certain amount of ways. Once you learn how to manipulate every pattern, you manipulate the game and you become successful. So I thank you guys for having me. I'm proud of both of you beyond any merit. You know that. You're like my younger brothers, and now you're getting old. So <laughs> I look forward to the days where I send you my son for that development. <laughs> nah, no problem, man. I, I appreciate you coming on, man. And I'll be in touch, man. I'll be out in L.A. Uh, as soon as the season is, I'll be out to do my normal checkups anyway. So we'll have to get dinner. Appreciate it. Thank you. Really enjoyed having you, my guy. All right, Jay. All right, see. Thanks. Once again, I want to thank the homie Earl Watson for calling into the pull-up pod. It's much appreciated. Great guy. Uh, mutual friends to both Jordan and I. He's actually the one who connected us. So funny to see how life works full circle. Jordan knew him when he was in Seattle. I played with him in Portland and also played against him when he coached for the Phoenix Suns. So it's amazing to see how life works. But now I want to read the trivia question winners briefly. Appreciate you guys continuing to listen every week. Uh, Wealth Bryant. Wells claims to have listened to every episode. I hope it's true. And I appreciate you subscribing and listening. Congrats on answering the question correctly. Filthy Animal. Filthy with a P. I love the name. Another person who hasn't missed an episode. Appreciate you tuning in and answering the question. Kevin Setna. Kevin S. Appreciate you also listening and tuning in. Kuzmo. C-U-I-Z-M-O. Christian Voskule. Appreciate you as well. And Kundu, Ph.D. A-N-I-N-D-Y-A. Aninda. Anindia. Anindia. I hope I said it right. I apologize if I miss, miss said, misread your name, but I do appreciate you guys tuning in faithfully and listening to the pod. Lastly, one of my favorite parts of the show, cue the wine music, please. 
We've been doing a lot of traveling lately, on and off the road, quick road trips, long road trips, short road trips. And uh, recently I had a, a few bottles of wine, actually. Um, I can't remember what I read last week, but I want to tell you guys about the St. Eden 2009. It's from Napa Valley. It was great. Uh, it went really well with the lasagna I had, as well as the salad and garlic bread. It's among the top 1% wines in the world. It's on the, it's on the expensive side, but it was a great vintage. It's something I really enjoyed. And since I can't remember if I read that last week, I'm going to give you another one. I also had a gift from um, the Marish Vineyard um, out in Dundee Hills. It was a 2014. I really appreciate you guys giving uh, Jess the bottle. Jess is our uh, head of H&P Health and Performance. He went to the vineyard with his family and they gave him two bottles to give to me. Uh, Chief Mo and I drank it on the way back from our most recent victory against the Clippers and we really appreciate it. It was a 2014 vintage Artaberry Marish. Marish. It's among the top 4% of wines in the world. Very, very light. Went down smooth and uh, I slept great afterwards. Jordan, what have you had lately? CJ, I went to Napa for a cab blend and it was fantastic. It's called Realm. A little bit pricey, but they have made a 100-point wine. I don't think I had that one, but it was it was great, especially after the second glass, my man. I'm going to have to add that to the list, man. I'll add it to the list of purchases I have to make. Um, this is a great pod. We, we did a great job. I want to thank all our listeners out there for tuning in faithfully each week. It's, it's truly, truly appreciated. Uh, you guys have no idea how much you impact our lives. Hopefully, we're impacting yours as well. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, backslash pull up with CJ or wherever you get your shows. And don't forget to pull up, pull up. <laughs> <laughs>